G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. And so we are the most adaptable of species, and this is how we've come to live on every single you know habitat on Earth. And that's how we've learned to not only survive, but to commandeer resources and, and knock out other species and everything else because we're so adaptive and we're so good at pattern recognition and then adapting biologically to those patterns. So for all of that, it's say brevity is it might lead to the purity of wisdom that the oak tree has. But for my complexity as a human, it gives me the opportunity for the highest number of expressions of beauty that nature would imagine. And so we should not discount the plasticity of the human genetic experience or, or our expression of self. That was Dr. Zach Bush, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. I sit here in a state of shock, almost. I've just uh, finished interviewing Zach Bush, Dr. Zach Bush, who, uh, for those who know Zach, know of him, you might have um, been lucky enough to get to one of his... uh, um, events. He's been in here. He's been in Australia f- uh, ten days. Um, he's he did three events, uh, four events. Sorry, Brisbane and Byron Bay and Sydney and Melbourne and a few other smattering of other other private and sort of public events um, amongst that. And uh, lucky enough to have sat with him for um, a good chunk of time here at the farm at Byron Bay. Um, and we've done quite a few other episodes before. And I've got to say, I I mean I. 
I was, I was probably haven't been as not, I wouldn't say nervous, but just kind of like on point or kind of considerate. Not that I'm in, inconsiderate of any other interviews, but I was kind of like really. Dinah Rogers was one other one, but then Joel Salton was probably the only other one. I really it was my first one actually, um, all those years ago, and um, so I just was as prepared as I've ever been, uh, and it was. I'm, I'm glad I did. Uh, one of those things I did was actually go to the the, the, the talk in Sydney a couple of days ago, on um, Friday night, and um, the second of December, and that gave me so much fodder and and pr- prompting and probing um, for the interview. But I got to say, it's I can't. I just I I'm feeling physically physically different. You know, when you when you sit with an intellect like that and with a, and it's not just. That he's smart and he's got—he's an amazing thinker. He's just his vibration, whatever wavelength he's on, and whatever state of consciousness or state of non-judgment and state of acceptance, and his state of—you know—in some ways, the sort of the juxtaposition of his individuality as a person, you know, his I am, and at the same time, his his connection to everything. You know, it's it's quite it's quite boggling to the mind to kind of contemplate and, and consider uh, consider that. We talked about some trees just here and just, just in front of us here and the way that um, you know, how you express them about what they are expressing, you know, from, from a sort of a spiritual point of view down to a sort of a, 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 a genetic point of view, you know, very science-based kind of stuff. I just love it. And I love the, the, the lens through which he sees things. You know, there's a science, the very clear science, you know, the refraction of light and the colour green and all the different things it does to us physiologically. And then just that sense and the very subjective and the very, um, the impact, the ancestral kind of connection we have with trees, you know, it's pretty spooky. And I just absolutely love it. So as I sit here and the rain starts to drizzle, we, we escaped that. It was no heavy rain. Um, we did have some, it was quite funny. There's a couple of kids that have turned up and we, we had a chat. We had a chat with these two kids. They go, what are you doing here? Why you got your headphones on? It was so cute. It was The timing was perfect, as these things tend to do. You know, timing was perfect because we were just talking about the innocence and was sort of curiosity and kind of, um, yeah, so they, they, they turning up, you know, um, Entering stage left was 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 absolutely perfect. Uh, the whole, I mean, the whole interview was just lovely, and and I haven't got too much more to say before I do sort of introduce him officially. Um, just another couple of announcements. We have I've kind of alluded to it a little while ago. We are we have put together. Um, I don't say put together. We've renovated some years ago, and now we are opening to the public. Um, Little Plains. It's a it's a it's a property of ours adjacent to Hannah Minow. Um, it's a beautiful 1920s style Federation home, brick Federation. It's been it's been renovated um, and it is absolutely beautiful. It sleeps twelve. Um, we are just opening those doors. Um, we will be doing farm tours. We'll be doing you know, potentially some horse riding um, activities and, and sort of um, uh, horse therapy, that sort, sort of all in the pipeline. And that's just not, not quite yet, but we have l- just wonderful plans for that um, as part of, you know, an accommodation kind of a offering to the world. You know, there are fruit trees, there are, they're going to be chickens and there's, you know, there's, uh, we, we trust that it's a really lovely place for people to come as a family, come as a couple of families, given it t- sleeps 12 and also, um, 
uh, retreats, we're really keen and we've been really thinking deeply about who we'd like to sort of let know it's there and invite and kind of to bring clients and do retreats because we can we can facilitate, you know, we'll just brainstorm and, and, and have some fun with whatever we can facilitate for those different clients. So that's if you are at all interested in, in, in as a practitioner of something or as a, as a, as a person of business who, who has clients you'd like to just take for a relaxing retreat or do some, some deep dives and strategy stuff, whatever it is, or you just want to get, get on farm and have some fun, get back to nature, breathe the biome out there um, at Burua and, um, and experience that with your family and your friends and your kids and so on, just drop us a line on our website, charliearnett.com.au. Just go to the inquiry page or the contact page and just just – Put your name down there and just let us know if you'd like us to keep you in touch with um, with anything about that. We've got newsletters, there's you know, new things happening with it, um, and we will let you know when the when the doors open and uh, and when you can actually start uh, start booking. So if you want to join that database, there, um, be the first or be the first sort of first few to get in there and experience that. Um, we're really excited about that. It's been a dream on for years and years and years to actually share. Um, that beautiful home, that beautiful homestead, and to share the the you know the what it is what it is to be there, nature, and it's you know chatting with Zach just now about biome and being in nature and our lack of connection and our isolation, you know, um, and all different sort of levels of that. At the cellular level, which, you know, is, is horrible, that, that sort of turns to disease and, you know, individual level, you know, and the whole COVID thing certainly pushed us a lot of people apart and is- literally isolation, you went into isolation. But a lot of us, I think, are living in, in you know, have, have lives of isolation in some ways, you know, whether it's sort of every day, you know, because you are just, you know, where you're living. I mean, I think anywhere that... Anywhere that one is living or you know, inhabiting that hasn't some connection with nature, you know, some level of connection, some some contact, literal, you know, opportunity to breathe the biome of nature, I think that represents some sort of isolation because that is, as he said, it was, as he said, it's our, um, uh, it's our formative, um, now original wound, the original wound of, of mankind was our disconnection from nature and our isolation, and that is a bloody horrible thing, you know, and I think. What's um, you know what's what's happened in the last couple of years? Um, you know, there's government policies. There are you know even school policies. I mean, not just even all around COVID, but just our lifestyles, where we're heading, and what what is becoming normal for children and normal for for families, and you know that lack of connection. It's actually essential at the cellular level, <clears throat> the mitochondrial level. It's just it's it's fascinating stuff, and it's just um, it's something that we're really you know we're really keen to sort of um, I will call it promote, be part of, give people the opportunity to. So drop your details there if you want to know anything about that. Um, we have just another announcement in October in 2023. I hope I'm okay to say this to you, Andrew, is we're going to be hosting a uh, naturally natural seconds farming course. I'm not sure when those dates are up, but they may already be on the Tarwin Park training website. If you want to get some details on that, drop go to that web, go to their website, and um, leave your details there for any updates on on the on the on the dates. So I do know the dates. So I just don't, well, I. I should know them. They're just not written in front of me, but there's certainly October 2023. Um, we want to fill that up. We want to get that sorted out and, and have Stuart have a full, um, I've no doubt, given it's not quite 12 months ago, he'll do that. But um, we're excited about the work we're doing between now and then to demonstrate uh, the, the principles and practices of natural sequence farming. 
And anyone who wants to uh, jump on uh, Patreon community and be part of that, uh, it's, a t- it's a $10 um, a month um, contribution um, that d- enables you to be part of our Patreon community where you get guest um, webinars every month. Um, you get uh, Q&As. I did a, that q and I did with, just did with Zach is absolute gold. It's it's generally like a pretty, you know, not straightforward, but it's like, you know, I've got some set questions like I just asked two, I think, of my normal set because he just exploded with answers. So um, if you want to be part of Patreon and get access to those exclusive Q&As, um, jump on charliehunt.com.au, go to the Patreon page and sign up. And if, you don't, if you're not totally satisfied with your membership for the first two months, within the first two months, we'll give you a total refund back. So no dramas about that. Um, probably enough out of me. Zach Bush, I've already banged on about him. Amazing, lovely, lovely fella. So enjoyed this chat with him. Um, uh, I think, you know, generally, unless you're totally new to the whole scene of kind of what I'm doing and what I'm involved in and Zach's involved in, you probably know a fair bit about him anyway. Um, We went all over the place, which is what I'm known to do. But it was so, it was such a, you know, stuff that he literally, he was literally having these epiphanies. He was, his, his, um, as he was saying at the cellular level, you know, he was um, talking from his, <laughs> talking from his atoms. He, he's, he was having kind of, I don't know whether you call them epiphanies or, or kind of these moments of clarity that like as we sat there and he said I've just thought of that and I'm just joining that together it was beautiful it was beautiful to see it was just beautiful to see that evolution of thinking before my very eyes and for those who aren't familiar with uh, Farmers Footprint Australia and that's essentially why Zach has been in the country in December for those 10 days doing doing some uh, events uh, on the east coast um, it's uh, it's the Australian chapter of his US Farmers Footprint not-for-profit uh, that he started a few years ago. Blair Beattie has been the champion, putting, uh, putting together a wonderful team of people to start that Australian chapter. They started with um, some uh, collection of uh, video content and put together a short, little short sort of a launch video. They're going to be putting a whole lot more uh, together next year. They're going to use that footage excuse me, and make some individual stories and also gather some more wonderful stories of Australian farmers and the wonderful things they're doing. Uh, and so if you uh, feel so inclined to con- contribute to Farmers Footprint Australia, go to their website and um, just Google Farmers Footprint Australia. It'll pop up there and there'll be an opportunity for you to um, contribute and donate to that um, either one-off or, or, a, or a monthly contribution. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, I appreciate Blair and the team um, for getting, you know, Zach out here and giving the opportunity to uh, to speak with him. I hope you enjoy listening and absorbing, ruminating on this lovely, wonderful chat I had with with Zach, as much as I did recording it, and uh, for this episode of the Regenerative Journey. Zach Bush, welcome to the Regenerative Journey. And welcome to the veranda here at the farmhouse at uh, at the farm at Byron Bay. It is absolutely <laughs> a blessing to be here. It's a good so thing you're a doctor. You just pop myself in <laughs> the face in the microphone. He's damaged already. <laughs> um, I'm glad to be here with you. Oh no, he's, he's, he's a technician. He's he's um, no, we run. We just run. I forgot to give you the. I forgot to give you the heads up. We just run. Nothing gets edited. Even if you want to go and drain the spuds. Hey, no, no, there's pressure on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not live, but we're, we're nearly live because we just we just go we just go unless you like 
I don't know. Everybody uh, up until this moment thought I was super intelligent, not realizing <laughs> they usually spend 20 hours to every two hours I talk to make it sound good. So now you're going to reveal the whole, the whole thing. That's my secret. Dang. <laughs> Got him. Zach, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. It's... Um, it's uh, it's been two and a half years, or well, nearly three years. We worked out the other day since you're in the country. I'm going to get to that, so I don't want to I don't want to um, go far off too 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 prematurely. But I, I I interview my guests in somewhat of their happy place, and given you possibly are many thousands of miles from your happy happiest place, I think this this part of Byron Bay and this part of Australia is not a bad substitute. This looks like my backyard, honestly. It's amazing. It's so similar to rural Virginia uh, with the rolling hills and the deciduous trees and your farmland intermixed it's, and the mountains in the distance there. That's the Blue Ridge Mountains where I come from. So you've got the you've got my backyard nailed. As good as <laughs> as good as it can be. That's it. Um, and my and, and given that I my guests are, I usually start in their happy place, their garden, their farm, their place of work. You know, I always ask, which I'm going to do to you right now. As, a, as, as this is a substitute, somewhat. Um, what sense does it give you? What, what does it What does it mean to you to look look here and see the people, see the animals, see the grass, see the mountains? Is it a Does it get you get you going? It's why we came, right? I think that why would why would some energetic force that we might call a soul show up in a human body? You know, if you're connected to the infinite of everything and energy is infinite, why would you pick a finite experience? And it would be to experience this uh, because there's something so indelible about a finite experience and that we are limited to these five senses. And so while we cannot see the vast majority of the energy field that's in front of us here, we're limited to the visual spectrum of our eyeballs, which interpret the whole spectrum of the electromagnetic field into this very narrow band of wavelength that our eye detects. And this is a great example of what the eye is so brilliant at doing is finding octaves of colors within a single genre of green, you know. And so we're watching a single wavelength that you could think of as green and it divides into so many different spectrums. We've got blue-greens and gray-greens and reddish-greens, and there's all of these nuances to a green uh, tone palette. And so as you look across this, there's something extremely soothing as a human being to receive that wavelength because it says to us, life. And this is the challenge of living in you know, high desert spaces and everything else is the eye is always looking for that green thing or a blue thing, that water body. And we stress when we don't see that green or blue spectrum. And when you're steeped in it, there's something neurologically that happens that really tunes you into the original source of who you are and the vibration. And just came out of South Africa and that, that wonderful African word, Ubuntu, is I am because you are. And this is one of the powerful things that nature does, I think, is reflects back at us who we are because it's so it, right? It is so present. These trees that are out on the horizon for us here are so thoroughly oak, so thoroughly eucalyptus over there, so thoroughly Norfolk pine. That tree never wakes up confused about its identity or its worth. You know, it doesn't have a sense of insecurity about being a Norfolk pine. It just is pine. And so when you're faced with a whole array of life that is so present and aware of itself, the only option is to become aware of yourself. And this is 
the option or opportunity we have as humanity is to walk back out into this nature to discover our real character. And so for me, this is this is the experience of remembering why you stepped into a finite body to be alive for a moment in, an, in what it really is an ethereal life. It's, it's here just for a moment. But man, it is precious to be able to witness beauty. And uh, this, this is an incredible example of it here. And these ibis birds perched on each of those posts out there as if they were sculptures. Uh, they are forming their own version of symmetric beauty out here in this mashup of you know, logs put vertical into a fence line. The ibis sees the opportunity for a sculptural perch and poses there with its incredible beak there, uh, pointing to something that we can't quite see, but we can sure feel. So a little bit of what I'm experiencing right now. I think that we'll probably leave it there. That's, right, that's yeah. probably enough. Exactly. Well, right. that was worth. <laughs> it was worth the flight. <laughs> <laughs> all across the Pacific. <laughs> that is awesome. I love the. I mean, I sort of. I, I, my daughter always asks me, and I think since she just likes me saying, you know, my favorite color is green. So it's actually like a innate, ancestral, primitive <clears throat> color of, of, of. Or is it? Is it sanctuary? Is it safety? Is it kind of? Does it literally trigger a response? Like if we see red, that that might be something. But when we see green, there's like a, a deep cellular comfort thing there yeah for sure and it's a learned comfort uh so when you what is the green i guess is where we could go the the green is a phenomenon of a small bacterium that got specialized uh, when we developed the multicellular plant life and that that bacterium started to live inside of the plant and the bacterium was the mashup of archaea and methane producing bacteria that swallowed each other basically and so you've got two bacteria functioning as a single organism Uh, in humans we call these mitochondria and in plants we call them plastids and a plant plastid has a variety of different structures and structural variations and functions but the one that's really turning all this green around us into its tone and hue and vibrational message that's sending this out into our bodies is chlorophyll and chlorophyll is just a fancy name for a plant plastid that takes carbon and puts it into long chains. And so CO2 is grabbed out of the atmosphere and start and laced together in a zipper-type fashion and kind of a zigzag long chain of carbon that we call glucose or fatty acids or whatnot. And so sugars and fats are, are created from CO2 by putting carbon double bonds together. And a double bond is is two electron potentials that are shared by two carbons. And those electrons are coming from sunlight. And so you're capturing carbon and sunlight and putting it into a battery that we call sugar or fat. When you consume that, it's broken down in your gut into, you know, it's usable counterparts of fatty acids and glucose sent to the liver. The liver then packages it up in a number of different fancy ways to get it out into the periphery of your body and delivers it to 70 trillion human cells, which cannot use it. It's, uh, human cells don't know how to use that stuff for anything, but the mitochondria inside your cells sure do. And so they pick up that work that was done by the plastids in the plant their their near relative and uh, takes that long chain glucose and fatty acid and in a single enzyme step interestingly take both glucose and fatty acids into the same molecule which is azo-CoA 
and then one more enzyme step and it's acetyl-CoA. So your mitochondria don't actually care if it's glucose or fat. It's going to turn it into exactly the same molecule in a quick enzymatic shift. And that acetyl-CoA then pumps through something pretty miraculous, which is the respiratory chain. The respiratory chain is a series of enzymes that, that uh, further breaks down the acetyl-CoA back into CO2 and in so doing releases sunlight. And so those double carbon bonds are liberated and the sunlight that put them together is now shining inside your cell. So why is the green so damn comforting to us? It's because we learned over time, probably pretty quickly, that that vibration means life. It's the only way we survive is if we are somehow directly connected to that chlorophyll in the plant. And that chlorophyll is creating the very solar battery that we're going to run on. And so it's such a relief to see this, you know, green running from our feet all the way to the horizon because we know there's energy infinite around us at this point. So that's that's why we like green. That's fascinating. I love it. I'm a scientist, kind of. I did, did my four years of science, so I appreciate science. But I love how there's kind of... It's, there's a bit of not spooky wah-wah. We might go there, but just spooky wah-wah. But yeah. I, love, I love that it's... Um, it's really understandable because science can sometimes be really dry, but I love the fact like it's a it's a it's a deep seated human emotion that that we can explain through science. Mm. Now, before we get too much more science, um, I might not have given you much of a briefing on what we're going to talk about. That's better if questions. You don't. No, I, I prefer it yes, that way. Dive in. <laughs> I was la- <laughs> I, I am glad I was at the at your your um, Sydney event two nights two nights ago. Uh, yeah, two nights ago, um, just to get up to speed with your latest kind of stuff, and it was fascinating. So we're going to touch on some of that. But the name of the podcast, The Regenerative Journey, is all about one's journey, my guest journey. It doesn't have to be about a regenerative farmer's journey from this to that. It's, you know, I've interviewed dentists, I've interviewed well, Ron, you interviewed yeah. you, I've interviewed Ron, actresses, um, actors, whatever, like pick a, pick a vocation and they've been on the show. And um, so I want to take you back to uh, your 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 existence, basically. And you you had a fascinating. I loved your um, some phrases that that um, you said on Friday night about the um, the impossibility of existence. Mm. Can you put your existence, <laughs> your first moment of dare I say life or existence, into the context of what you told us on Friday night? Mm. Yeah, I think that... Make it personal. Yeah. Um, when do we find out that uh, we're a miracle, I guess is maybe another way to think about that question, if that's what you mean by it. I, you know, when did I find the miraculous nature of my own life? And I think that, that we all can draw some breadcrumbs into that that slow or maybe sudden discovery of that. Uh, the world wants to th- wants us to, to believe that this is very common and not terribly surprising that we're here, <laughs> you know. Because uh, if it's not surprising we're here, then then we're a bit of expendable and no problem to abuse humans and no problem to try to own humans and their behavior and productivity can be owned and uh, and so I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, of trying to de- deconstruct all of that because it's it's really a journey into discovering self value in a world that provides no metrics for self value on this level. When did I start to realize it was a miracle? Um, 
trying to think further back than I usually start in a podcast here to give you something juicy here, but well, let, let, how about we start with the sort of the basics of where where were you born? Yeah, I was born home? in Boulder, Colorado, which is a yeah. bit of a miraculous spot in and of itself. It's not indifferent actually than this little neck of the woods here, where you have community that's come together around an energetic space. And when I say an energetic space, it could sound a bit woo woo, but these have been recognized by humans for you know since our origin as we are walking through a landscape and we suddenly feel something that this this feels good this is this feels like this could support life or this feels like home or this feels vigorous or whatnot and so we get these feelings as we're walking through landscapes and this is a place where for thousands potentially as long back as you know 60,000 years uh, humans have been living in this exact space here and the indigenous people have a song line that runs through here which is where they would walk the ley lines which is the geologic energy stripe that runs through this zone and they would sing songs and the song would end when they they got to their home or to the end of the trail wherever they were heading and so that song line is felt here whether we are you know seeming transplants or tourists coming in or podcasters coming by or whatever it is but uh, you can feel that in the land. We just had lunch nearby here, and you can see the way that community gathers very naturally in this space. People want to be out on a porch eating together, and people want to cook good food here, and they want to share it with people. And you've got you know people who are going to buy little rundown shacks and turning them into you know, three-star to five-star culinary experiences and people flock to the experience not because just the food is there but because the energy is there in the air and so there's um, that miracle happening in Boulder uh, it's right at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains and an incredible little valley and the Boulder Valley sits at the foot of these incredible for- rock formations that are called the Flatirons and it's basically vertical redstone red sandstone you know, cliffs that have been lifted out of the earth into these vertical plates and uh, they're stunning backdrop to the Boulder Valley and I grew up in those mountains all, all the time and it's one of the blessings when, when you uh, have a, a relative paucity of financial wealth nature becomes your your free everything right it's your education it's your recreation it's your cultural and social spaces because there's no big mansion to hole up in for the family reunion, so you're out in nature doing it. And uh, deep gratitude to my mother. She she learned to garden when I was a little kiddo. Um, we lived in low-income housing with these Hmong women from Cambodia that were refugees from the Vietnam War that was still ongoing when I was born. And these women were dressed in their native garb and would squat in these little 10 by 10 plots that were the community gardens that were provided for people who lived in the low-income housing, which frankly isn't done anymore in low-income housing. Nobody's given a garden spot anymore. Perhaps there's a few out there and exceptions, but unfortunately that's no longer recognized as an appropriate thing to provide people to who don't have much money to, to provide food security for them is to give them a garden. So my mother said, you know, these women would squat all day long talking and, you know, sharing story across those little strings every 10 feet and uh, it was a beautiful thing to witness, I think, as a kid. And I, I started to get a sense of self uh, in those Rocky Mountains, for sure. And there was a few camping 
trips when I was, you know, 10, 12 years old, when I started to find myself for sure and started to feel something greater than my physical body as I was witness to stars. I remember that in particular, 12 years old. I was on an igloo camping trip. We'd built igloos in the winter time to sleep in, and I'd had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and you're always kind of freaked out in the middle of the night when you're a 12-year-old kid, and you have to go out in the dark, and and uh, there's you know a couple feet of snow on the ground, and uh, snow drifts that are 15, 20 feet deep around you, and you you get out and crawl out of that igloo, and suddenly you're in dead silence because there's something about ice cold air in winter with that blanket of snow over it that just muffles all of nature. And so there's this dense silence and you're at 12,000 feet uh, of altitude and the stars I felt like I could walk into. The Milky Way was so bright that night there was no moon and uh, there's no lights within you know 30 miles of you. And it's just a stunning scene to walk into as a 12-year-old and suddenly I felt like some sort of God, I, I felt this incredible connection to that universe and to the snow beneath my feet. And even just sitting here talking about it, I can smell the snow. That's that weird ion, ion smell that happens when ice interacts with air. And so that's, you know, wouldn't have put words to it maybe at that time. But looking back, man, I knew I was connected to something huge or maybe I was huge. You know, that first sense of like, whoa, I'm not a 12 year old kid. There's <laughs> there's something here that I feel like I could move these mountains around me with what's flowing through me at that moment. And those are few and far between moments, I think, you know, until we start to be aware that this is something we can foster. Hey, kids. And this is perfect to hear those little voices chumbling in right now. Hello. We're doing an interview. What's an interview? Oh, an interview. Yeah. Well, we're having a, a we're having a chat, a talk. We're talking about we're telling each other stories. Now, why do you have headphones on and those microphones? Well, just so we can get the sound quality right, and so we can hear everyone, including you two, when we're talking. Ah. The whole world gets to hear you both now. <laughs> That's it. Have fun on what the do you farm. Reckon? Have fun. You know where the pigs? The pigs over there. There's bees over there, and there's sheep. Oh, where are the sheep gone? Oh, well done. You've already done the rounds. Cool. We'll get back to it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, perfect. That curiosity that's in them is, uh, you know, exactly what we're talking about in some ways. In which the brain, when it, when it relaxes, has to do creativity and curiosity it, 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 there's no other option and it, it speaks to how infrequent the adult brain is allowed to shift into that parasympathetic state because our creativity and curiosity has thoroughly died out typically by the time we're at the end of our third decade and you end your 20s and you start your 30s and now you're fully on the, the mechanical path of this is what I'm supposed to do and you're doing damage control on the finances and damage control on your relationships and you're something you've become detached from a sense of self and nobody's giving you time to witness the miracle of walking into a star field in the middle of the night in the high mountains and then we listen to these kids for just a minute and there's no sense of awkwardness or shyness or 
didn't dawn on that there'd be anything inappropriate about asking the question. What the hell are you guys doing? I just love it. This is ridiculous. Why are you wearing headphones? You're talking to each other like two feet apart. You can't hear each other. Why are you using microphones? Aren't you talking to each other in your face? Don't you know where the sheep are? That's such a good question. They'd be like perfect little um, tour guides, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they be good? They would be perfect. Yeah, train up a little bit so they get lost and then just take all the adults out. Actually, it's my favorite part about Farmers Footprint, all the content that the incredible team in the U.S. has created in Australia here as well. Both both Farmers Footprint teams have created some extraordinary content, but we have one called the uh, Regen Rascals, which are <laughs> kids on farms talking about their farm, and it is unbelievably adorable. And Is that like yeah. behind-the-scenes stuff, or you actually sit them down and they talk about it? Oh, yeah, the no, they're, they're yeah. fully interviewed, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, they're typically not sitting down. They're usually standing in, in you know, next to their beehive and telling you about that <laughs> or whatever it is, and the Regen Rascals is great content. You can find that on the Farmers Footprint website. Precious, isn't it's it? so good, and like you say, it is the best tour guide because uh, they're connected to that miracle. They're connected constantly to that awareness of all of this is more amazing. Can you imagine? And I can do it. I can participate in this thing called life. And uh, boy, we forget that we're participating in life. We think we're participating in a company. Or I'm starting. I'm starting to get really tired of the way that we label ourselves in companies, right? CEOs and you know, marketing directors and. We have all these titles that are so devoid of life, you know, and companies are starting to shift out of that. You're starting to see some that have, you know, chief vision officers. There's kind of a breakthrough, but there's some more that are getting a lot more creative now and dropping chiefs and directors and all of that and starting to be more creative. But, man, I, I yearn for a world where we no longer need a title, you know, and uh, the light being, miraculous being is enough, you know, and... Uh, we, we divide ourselves from ourselves uh, by putting these titles on us. And in some ways, the more altruistic the title that we would label ourselves with, the, the more likely it is to deeply separate us, our, ourselves from, from self. Uh, my soul certainly wasn't waiting for, you know, the title of medical doctor to come along to feel validated as a, a eternal light being that now manifests in a finite fashion in a particle state that we call a human body to coordinate 14 quadrillion mitochondria within me to liberate the light from 14 quadrillion chlorophyll that are feeding me every day through a microbiome of 1.4 quadrillion bacteria and fungi in my gut like it's too miraculous to put your head around right and yet i'm a, I'm a ceo let's not let's not complicate it it's just a chief executive <laughs> officer no it's 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 really frustrating that we have fallen so short of what the impossibility that we're alive and and the awe and uh, joy that we should feel within ourselves when we wake up and be dang i'm breathing again i picked another day to stay alive that's fascinating because uh, it's mathematically impossible, and I did it again. So there must be a reason we're here. Did you share your experience of nature with any siblings? Oh yeah, yeah. I got there's four of us. I'm the oldest of four, and yeah, we were, we all had our own experiences with it. Yeah, I think uh, each would probably report a different version of that. But my my brothers were definitely intrepid. Uh, adventurers out there at young ages uh, and uh, we had a pond out back of our house uh, by the time they were born um, well I guess not when they were born but by the time they were old enough to be running around together we had this little pond out back of our house and 
we were always catching crawdads and running around and you guys call them something else, something like yuppies or yuppies or something. Um, yabbies. <laughs> yabbies. Yabbies. <laughs> yabbies. Or... That's a darn good name for a crawdad. <laughs> Yabby. Um, but, you know, I, so I remember them there and I certainly remember, you know, taking them on camping trips and, and things like that when I was younger and uh, I was 10 years older than my youngest brother. So it was fun to kind of serve as kind of an uncle role to them as they were growing up. And those Rocky Mountains definitely were our playground. And there's something about family that uh, has a grounding rod source to it but I think the nuclear family is really aptly named uh, around the word nuclear which is explosive so and when we dropped from village or tribe to these nuclear families especially in the 1950s post-World War II we went to these kind of beliefs of the white picket fence and we suddenly walled each other off from one another's households and families started to to go through the diaspora of capitalism in a different way. An education system started taking kids away from their homes to, quote-unquote, get the good education and you know, do their thing and all that. And for that, they, they learned a different world and forgot where they came from often, I think. And so we got disconnected from family. So immediate family is good, but I feel like I've spent the last 40 years finding new family because we all went through a diaspora and... I collected my whole extended family back to Virginia, ultimately, and moved 24 of my family members, grandparents on both sides, aunts, uncles, cousins, all this. And that was important for us as a family. My grandparents got to die on both sides of my family. They got to die right near family, and, and my, my grandparents on my mother's side died in the home. Uh, we built a little addition on their on their old 1860s farmhouse, and, and my grandparents passed away both peacefully in that home and so there's something that really beautiful happened as we kind of regathered that that tribe and interestingly you know around this the story of the ley lines and the song lines and all of this I moved there I interviewed all up and down the east coast of the United States uh, for my postdoctoral work after I'd finished as I was finishing medical school and walked into this town and felt like this is this feels like home this is amazing and really felt like it was having a spiritual moment too it was like this I can't really explain it but a nice town it should be good to have raised my kids in but it felt deeper than that and I'd lived there for about six years and then my parents moved there from Boston and moved in this little farmhouse and we start unpacking this uh, box of my grandfather's uh, where he had all this information on our family tree which goes back 400 years in the United States our family arrived in 1617 and out of Europe and it turned out that my relatives lived like 70 miles from this town that I felt like home in and for 400 years ago they found that same space and so there's something real about this phenomenon of uh, the sensory experience of, of finding something that vibrates something within you that that's that speaks to home or nourishment or safety or protection or something like that so uh, it's been a real joy it's been a joy to be connected to that but now I'm you know for the last you know 30 years I think I have been looking for the bigger family and I've been really blessed to find a global family now of people that really vibrate to my to my sense of self Maybe even more so than blood, you know, because I think you know, ultimately bloodline is one thing, but we're, we're made of stardust, and uh, stardust sprinkled across this planet here is is going to have different identities and, and vibrate just like the antenna on a radio or it's going to pick up different stations, and you're going to find people in this world that, that vibrate right to you. They probably speak a different language, they're born on a different continent, but man, you, you put your arms around them, give them a big hug, and you can feel 
something really akin to kinship, and it's a beautiful thing. You're a big hugger, <laughs> which I love. It's fantastic, and I've I've become a hugger in the last I don't know five years or so. For an Australian, that's a miracle. <laughs> it is. That's even a, more of a miracle than the miracle of life. <laughs> and even like dad, like dad, the, the, I think the, the one the one time I remember dad hugging me was. Some friends of mine, well, good mates of mine, and I walked the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea in whatever six, seven days. It was it was arduous, but it was so um, it was amazing. And we got back from that, and I met, that was probably the first time he'd hugged me in. I don't know. I hesitate to say maybe since I was a kid, um, but it was one. But he, he also hugged my best mate as well, one of my good mates, which is wonderful. So hugging is hugging. I'm a big fan, and I, I actually like kind of making people feel a little uncomfortable. You know, I know people are. Come on, bring it in. What is that about the hug? Is there something that was there an exchange? Is there like a what is it? It's not just like let's just get awkward and put our arms around each other. What actually happens when you do that? Yeah, I, I think the, the answer is probably far beyond the beauty of what I can capture or what we know. Uh, but I think that the obvious things is that you're bringing two energy fields together. So in my clinic, we, we use a camera to uh, image the human energy field over the last you know, 12 years or so. And so thousands of patients imaged over and over again over years. And you start to really get an appreciation for this huge glow of energy that comes out of the body. And our eyes, again, only capture this very narrow bandwidth of what we call visible light spectrum. But the spectrum of light coming out of us is spectacular. And the, and the scale of that energy field coming out of you is spectacular. You burn so brightly. Uh, one statistic that still blows my mind that I share all the time is you know, that mitochondria and that respiratory chain that we talked about are so good at liberating sunlight inside of our cells that you're actually 10,000 times brighter per cubic centimeter than the surface of the sun because of the efficiency of that carbon double carbon bond and the efficiency of the mitochondria to release that light within your cells. And so when I give somebody a hug, I'm experiencing sunlight from another being filtered through their unique wavelength, their unique structures within their body that give it a nuance. And there's a lot of demonstration now in the scientific community and scientific literature that shows that as a hug occurs, we get a huge neurotransmitter event, especially if you'll hold on to that hug for you know, anywhere in the 15 th seconds to, to one minute. There's a whole cascade of neurochemical and neuroendocrine events that start to, to go through the body. And the common ones talked about are serotonin, dopamine. But there's more subtle ones, too, that are released in small amounts, things like prolactin and oxytocin and things like this that are really beautiful reconnections. Oxytocin is actually often in even Western medicine referred to as the God hormone uh, because it has this extraordinary way of connecting you to that infinite nature within yourself or around you. And so intimacy of, of any form, including that hug, is capable of igniting this, this God hormone experience where we feel this deep connection to not the person we're hugging necessarily, but to actually to ourselves is the oxytocin experience of, oh yeah, that's who I am. So a hug is a powerful way, again, Ubuntu, I am because you are. So you get that hug and you know yourself better at the end of the hug because you just witnessed another. And uh, that's, that's a powerful tool just in and of itself as far as self-actualization. But as a clinic, it became a very powerful tool for me. The more I sank into the identity as a, a hugging doctor, uh, 
people got started to expect that. You know, like I'd have initial patients that you know I'd never met before, but they'd heard and they'd seen a podcast, they'd done something, and they're like just vibrating with excitement to give me a hug. Like we've been waiting for this hug. We've traveled for four thousand miles to get this hug, whatever it is. And you give them a hug, and initially, you know, when that first started being a thing, I, I experienced that sense of camaraderie, that sense of connection, that sense of immediate trust that could be built. And that obviously makes you a much better doctor, because ultimately that doctor-patient relationship is simply one of trust and uh, vulnerability and transparency. But as I started doing more and more and started relaxing, and got over the excitement of, oh my gosh, we can hug each other, I, and start really experiencing the experience, pretty quickly realized each hug was completely different and I could go in as self and I was feeling different things across that person's you know body from their foot all the way to their head even if you're not touching that part of their body you're experiencing it and it's informing something in your body and so it became my favorite diagnostic tool in clinic pretty quickly and to this day when I give a hug I can tune in and get, you know, I can either pay attention to my energy field and what's happening there, which is always a good thing, or I can tune in and, and experience what my energy field is doing in response to theirs. And what I found is I could sit, you know, give them a big hug, welcome to the clinic, so glad you're here, sit down in the exam room a couple seconds later. And instead of asking them why they were there or how they got there, I'd say, so what, tell me about that, the issue in your right low, lower belly there. And they're like, how do you know that's going on? Uh, because I could feel something shift in my right lower belly when I was giving you a hug, you know. And so we have these diagnostic interest, instruments that are quantum physics, you know, intelligent level, you know, laboratories basically that we call human bodies. And farmers have those. And a gardener has those. And a mother preparing a meal has those. And the father who's doing the work to sit down and read to a child at night these are these bodies are energetic tools and they're transceivers of information they both transmit and receive information all the time at this level of the water uh, within our bodies and the carbon light within our bodies and so it's the dance of the carbon cycle and the water cycle within the body that produces these quantum physics events that are so sensitive uh, to pick up so much information and and exhibit an intelligence that's so far beyond the human brain human brain i'm not terribly impressed with uh, neurologically it's not it's not that complex of a structure in the sense that it only pays attention to the five senses, basically, and then regulates a bunch of subconscious biologic functions, which I don't want to diminish the, the miracle of a brain. But it's actually not where our wisdom comes from. Like, there's no part of the brain responsible for wisdom. There's no part of the brain actually even responsible for memory, which is pretty weird. Long-term memory is not held within the brain, which seems illogical to our current, you know, kind of lay and even medical perception of the brain. But the only little tiny part that has anything to do with memory is the, the hippocampus, which is you know, the size of my pinky nail sitting in, in the peripheral part of my temporal lobe right behind my ear. That tiny little pea-like structure helps move the experience of right now into what we call short-term memory that lasts for a few minutes to a few hours. And then it just is gone. That memory can't exist anymore in that part of the brain. It's shoved out of there. In the computer, we would refer to this as the RAM, the, the random access memory. The ROM, the hard drive, the, the memory bank of a computer is a totally different you know, structure. And we haven't found that structure in the human brain or any mammalian brain. 
And so we certainly have long-term memory. I was just telling you about a memory from 12 years old as if it's today. And as I was sitting there, eyes closed, telling you that story, I could experience the whole thing. I knew the smell, the air, the taste in my tongue, the the feeling on my skin, the, the appearance of the stars over me. Where is that information held? And science today can't tell you on the Western allopathic side, but certainly indigenous wisdom knew. And I would say that most traditional healing arts still know that 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 information is held peripherally in our body in the water structure of what's called the myofascia now, but it's basically the mycelial network that runs beneath our skin. And so if you picture your skin and your gut lining as the soil systems, the mycelium is running deep to the soil and it's it's fiber optic cable system that runs beneath there and those fiber optics are moving light energy through water. And it's that dance again of energy and water that would create the ROM or the hard drive of your body. And this is why you can be getting a massage or body work or something like this and then suddenly start crying for no reason you can point to because you just hit that massage therapist just released an emotional trauma from decades ago that was stored in your right lower back or whatnot. And Chinese medicine worked that out 4,000 years ago. You know, they've demonstrated that we store psychosocial stress about our immediate family, especially around health and finance of our children or immediate home in our low back between you know the lumbar regions of kind of L3 through L5 and the coccyx, the end of the tailbone there. And so that we knew 4,000 years ago we were storing emotional trauma in these places and it would then exhibit pain or other things is, is extraordinary. And we've lost that in allopathic medicine. We've, we've forgotten that the body is a memory bank of everything that's ever happened. Interesting, not just to us, but all of our family line, 40 generations back, is remembered in my water structure. I love it. I was going to say seven generations, but 40, yeah? I think it is 40. I mean, for all I know, it could be 400, but it's certainly beyond seven. Yeah, the, we've tracked it in mice. Mice have short lifespans, giving us the opportunity to track through many generations. But you can do do a chemical insult or, uh, you know, a, a trauma on a mouse. One of the ways that they traumatize mice, which is kind of horrific sounding, is they do near drownings where they basically make the mouse swim in a tub of water that doesn't have a way out until they're just exhausted, and then they pull them out and save them. But in that exhausted state, there's a whole bunch of stress responses that happen at the genetic level, and then they let that mouse reproduce and track the genetics of that stress event, and it's still there in 40 generations, so... So there's something really fascinating about memory, where it's stored, and our ability to pass it on through generations that would give you an idea of why do we act like we do as humans? Why? Well, it's because we're a bundle of emotional trauma that's given no avenue to decompress itself or detox its pathway. And the further we've gotten away from indigenous knowledge of this, the more likely we are storing this stuff inappropriately in our bodies without metabolizing these emotions out of our system. And uh, we're taught to bucket up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Don't bitch and moan. Just get get it done. Uh, why are you why are you crying, son? Stop crying. You know these little the subtle things we hear from our grandparents or whatnot. We're taught to bury this stuff down instead of letting it metabolize through our system, and then we're passing on to our kids for forty generations. You know, so we're this, these amazing columns of water that remember. 40 generations at least of emotional storage of unprocessed junk and for that we have become very isolated from the original math of being self and so my 
what I would call a soul, the energy center that animates my body, is sending down very coherent waveform into my body that informs every single cell in my body as to, to, to the concept of self so that my liver knows itself in the context of a greater organism. And my whole psychoneurologic, psychosomatic space has never woken up thinking I'm Charlie, which must be pretty amazing. I'm a little sad I haven't experienced that, but never woke tried. up thinking I was Charlie. Yeah, I've tried. I've, I've tried to wake go up. to sleep praying about you. Can I just be Charlie for a day? <laughs> well, that's funny because I did the same with you too. <laughs> but it doesn't happen because we have that original math. So there's an original vibration coming through us. But its translation to me and who I am today has to filter through layers of 40 generations of emotional junk and unmetabolized traumas and beliefs and programs that have been running to deep disempower me from that original math. And so I elicit disease. Could, can I also work conversely that um, the, the joy, so, so there's trauma, but there's also then joy or gratitude or wonderful experiences can that also be carried through generationally so that would actually be you know a good legacy as opposed to a sort of a traumatic leg- legacy is that a possibility presume so it just has never happened in human history <laughs> we if you look at you know this this the history of humanity is simply war after war after war after war all the way back on a thousand years you know as far back as oral history can t- take us we have been at war every generation forever mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting that we've never really found, you know, that era of peace that's allowed us to do it. And, um, you know, there's some eras that happened in the last 2,000 years where that became famous for the art and everything else, where there was two or three generations where there was not war. And so there was these moments of pause. And so epigenetically, that stuff does brew through, but it's unfortunately so rare that it's occurred in, the, in our 200,000-year history. And so I'm not sure that we, we've even seen the beauty yet of what we could become if, if we started to epigenetically and through the water vibration of our memory implant a state of connectivity and sense of joy that would last for generations. It takes four generations for a new genetic experience to be moved from the epigenetics into what we call the germline of the genes, which is the germline genetics as in the sperm and the ovum, so that your children are definitely going to be programmed with that. Up until that moment of germline transfer, the epigenetics are pretty plastic. It can change or not change. So if you have a a generation of peace, great, you've got some... You know, 25 years of peace, nobody went to war. You might be kind of imprinting those senses of nurture and safety and all that down to the epigenetic level. But if the next generation's at war again, you lost that message. So you need three, four generations of peace or a sense of joy, I think, to be the predominant expression of self for it to reach that germline. And I don't know if we've ever gotten there. I'm not sure if it's happened in human history that we actually got to, you know, I'm sure maybe for single individuals it's happened. But for a whole society, I'm not sure that we've been able to see the full expression of joy or this full expression of our original math of connectivity where we actually knew that everything was connected invariably and was important because every element within the firmament of nature itself was critical because it was expressing part of another fractal of the beauty through its own vibrational uniqueness. And it's only for the uniqueness and the reverence and the sovereignty of each pixel within nature that the whole thing works. And so I have deep fascination about that. So we just launched a nonprofit called the Institute of Natural Law and Governance that's wondering if we can look into nature 
and discover a different sociopolitical, sociocultural way of expressing ourselves. That's a form of biomimicry to the way in which 40,000 species of bacteria, let alone probably another couple hundred thousand species of fungi, exist within my body to express self. And they do it without war. They do it without a sense of you know, uh, ownership or a sense of propriety. Or instead, there's this this constant reinforcement of the importance of biodiversity. And nature has been doing it since its origin story, and 14 billion years ago in this universe, four billion years ago on our planet. Nature is pushing for biodiversity and adaptation. And adaptation allows for more biodiversity. More biodiversity learns, leads to more adaptation. And so that's the cycle of life. It, it has put at its fundamental metrics of success the capacity to biodiversify, which is to say create new genetic possibilities of expression of nature. And we do this now through, you know, for the first few billion years, it was about one and a half billion years, I guess, it was just done through horizontal gene transfer, which we see in the farm all the time. Uh, when you start spraying Roundup and other chemicals, uh, you'll start putting pressure on all of the weeds to find a way around that chemical destruction. So they make a whole bunch of new genetic sequences and they can pass it to and fro in their root systems through horizontal gene transfer through bacteria and all of this. And pretty soon you have weeds that are resistant to Roundup after 15 years because they found their genetic loop out of the, out of the problem. And so horizontal gene transfer works really well in an ICU so that bacteria can figure out how to be drug resistant against all the antibiotics the doctor's using or out in a field when all the antibiotics use as herbicides, you know, or you find their way out of that trauma. And that's how it was for about, uh, you know, one, one billion plus years on the planet. And, but it was slow. It, it led to adaptation, but it had to be local, right? So yeah, one bacteria had to bump into another to get this transfer to go. Then, suddenly, when I have billion years in, some bacteria, perhaps by accident, perhaps by divine expression, wrapped up that genetic code in an, in an envelope of protein that could then leave the surface of the cell and go distance. And today we call these things viruses, but they've been around for billions of years. And they allowed for life to occur in the beauty that we see today. Without viruses, we could have never had the biodiversity on the planet that we see today. Because suddenly, genes from various bacteria in one pool could talk thousands of miles away and give an opportunity for a new expression to another pool of bacteria far off that had been doing horizontal gene transfer for maybe a billion years, but hadn't gotten too far from their original imprint. Suddenly, being able to speak across ecosystems genetically allowed for these paradigm leaps in biodiversification and adaptation. So that's when life really got a foothold uh, in beauty here on the planet, I think, was with the, the birth of the viruses. Viruses are not living beings. They're just genetic sequences that are packaged and sent widely. So it's basically the FedEx system of, of, uh, of the genetic world. And we've been recently programmed to think these things are attacking us or whatnot. And there's no way a virus can attack a human body or any other body. It's absolutely impossible because it's just a short genetic sequence that then has to be taken up by a multicellular organism. And then it, that organism needs to decide, this is what I'm going to produce. We were told that viruses take over the apparatus of genetics in the human cell. It cannot. That's, that's a complete misperception, if not a flat-out lie now in science, because we've known for 30 years that's not true. 
there's the step of deciding to take a, a gene to a protein and then you know produce that at volume is one of the highest controlled decisions in the body. In fact, there's 200 different proteins that have to be in concert to decide to take that new gene and, and put it into production. So there's, and those don't travel in the virus. And so the virus simply says, hey, here's a possibility. And the body takes that up and says, oh, hell yeah, we're doing this thing. And so why would the body take up a new gene? Because it needs to adapt to its environment. And so the body's constantly screening for new opportunities to express some, some new trait. And so when we see a virus causing fever, our initial thing is, oh, geez, the person's sick. What a bummer. They've been attacked by a virus. Fever is one of the most important adaptation events that happens in a human body. And that fever is, you know, kills cancer cells. It, it, uh, prol- it forces proliferation of mitochondria inside our cells, which literally makes us younger. Uh, so when we come running around and giving everybody Tylenol for their fever so they don't have a fever, we're basically truncating the possibility of adaptation and youthification in that body. And we look at it as a bad thing to have a fever. We need to completely rework our whole concept of sickness. The expression of an illness is actually the most vigorous effort of a body to do a ginormous adaptation event there. And uh, we need to herald that as your body's recognition that there was a weakness or a vulnerability within it that it can now move past because it's mounted the fever. It's now creating a new genetic sequence in the body. Every cell in the body, 70 trillion cells, has screened for that new genetic option and has decided whether or not it's going to do that. And so coronavirus, as it goes across the world, is simply presenting a new opportunity. It cannot take over the cells. And there was a lot of talk about, well, maybe it's a military, militarized virus or whatnot. I don't care if it's made in a lab or in the pig stool of Wuhan province, which is where I personally think it probably came from. But wherever that virus came from, it doesn't have the apparatus within it to take over the human body. The human body has to be in such a, a, a diminished state that it decides it needs fever. It decides it needs to do a huge regenerative event. And you don't have to live long on a farm to find out that the first steps of, you know, one of the first precepts of regeneration is death. And when a wheat, and when a tree becomes weakened and it's you know kind of failing because the soil quality wasn't good and didn't have nutrient density and the core of it's starting to rot out, it falls down. At the moment that tree falls over here on the periphery of this, the woods here, it, if you genetically sequence it's it's the cellular structure within it, it's one species and it has very few genes an oak, you know, a few dozen genes, whatnot. And so you've got this very small genetic sequence or pool of information that says, I'm oak. Then it dies and it falls on the floor. And then a year later, you come back and you genetically sequence the the wood of that tree that died a year ago. And it's 100,000 species. One species transforms into 100,000. And so if a virus gets taken up by a whole species across a globe and some of the people self-select for death in that, that is a self-selection at the cellular level. That's, that's maybe consciously they didn't say, I would like to die from this virus. But at the cellular level, there was a recognition of a failure of life, a failure of nutrients, a failure of vitality. And the body in that opportunity says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cycle up. I'm going to recycle into the earth. I'm going to turn into 100,000 species in the ground. And I'm going to cycle up energetically into a new body whatever that is, and that new body might be the 100,000 species of earth you know, around, around your coffin or around the ashes you dump back into the soil system after your cremation. 
but you will turn back into life because you cannot kill energy. Energy is infinite. It is an irrepressible, indelible. And so that, that reality of life beyond the human form is seen all the time in a farm. And in our human psyche where we fear death and we see ourselves separate from nature, we forget that this is a choice. This is an expression of vitality. When, when your body chooses to upcycle into nature again, it means that you reached a point where you've completed that journey. You've completed that expression of energy that is human. And it's a rebirth moment. And in my hospice work, I was admitting 80 patients a week to my hospice service. And so you're seeing that much death. You realize death is anything but an endpoint. The oak doesn't see it as an endpoint. It sees it as the birth of 100,000 species. And so uh, I've seen humans come to that realization as they step into that and across that veil that we, we call human consciousness. And then they come back into the body for a moment. They're like, oh, my gosh. I'm sorry, I was such a freak of a parent, and I'm so sorry, you kids, that I was. This, I just saw the whole story, and it's absolutely perfect. By the way, don't worry about anything. I am, and you see this reconciliation to these estranged relationships that had lasted decades because they just glimpsed the other side. You see that day in and day out, thousands of times over a four-year period as a as a hospice doc, and you just stop thinking the same thing you just can't see life the same way after that because it's a continuum that seems to get more beautiful with every iteration because they, the people who come back from the other side of the veil always say that oh my god it's so much more beautiful than I thought and uh, their uniform statement is often I, I felt so accepted on that side of the veil which is a bit of a sad statement because it means that up until that you know they lived 85 years as a human and never felt accepted and I've heard people from all walks of life say that. And uh, it's a bit of a sad thing that we, we don't know how to accept each other and see the miracle within one another. And, uh, but we're coming along. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Do you get a sense, because I know you've been present to, you know, a lot of death and been there to sort of assist and comfort um, in that journey, do you get a sense of the ones that you know are going to come back? Do you, or, do you, like, is there, is, or is it just like, oh, shit, I didn't expect that? You know, is there some sort of a any sense of that at all? Yeah, it tends to be a surprise for me. You know, I think there's a lot of people that I'm like, oh, this is a young kid. They're, you know, they just had, went into cardiac arrest in an ICU because they had double pneumonia after chemotherapy and whatever they're going through and whatever reason they're immune deficient or whatnot. And you think, oh, this kid's got a good shot at it. And you go through the protocol and you pump in a bunch of epinephrine and and lidocaine into their bloodstream. You shock them three or four times on the chest. You're doing compressions. You got an ambu bag on their face and you're pushing you know, oxygen exchange across their lungs. You think this person's going to pop back in a second and they don't. 
And then 15 minutes later, the code bell goes off and you're doing the same day protocol on an 85-year-old woman with stage four cancer and no reason to be alive that you can tell. And moments later, she's back awake. And you know, that, that was the first woman I actually resuscitated. This was before I was a doctor. I was an EMT and running uh, with the fire fire department. I was running with an ambulance there. And it was the first, I'd just been EMT for not even a week. It was probably my second or third shift that I experienced, was, which is just an adrenaline rush. And you're a young kid, you got no freaking clue about anything. And you're suddenly in emergency, you know, rushing into a house, and, and this woman had just died of a heart attack. And we pulled her down off the bed and onto the ground so that there was a firm place to do chest compressions. And, and so you've got three firefighters and a paramedic, and me as an EMT, five of us on the ground in this tiny little floor space. And pounding on this woman's chest and blowing in her mouth and trying to get this thing started and I'm tracking her pulse and there's no pulse there and I'm doing compressions and uh, I stop compressions for a second they ask me to check a pulse again and I say I think there's one there I was too nervous to really commit to it but I felt like I was feeling a pulse and paramedic is like what and nobody's thinking that it could be a pulse that quick and and uh before he could even get to the pulse, the woman woke up and sat up on the floor, and um, which doesn't happen. I never, seen, I've never seen that happen again. <laughs> but she literally just like woke up, sat up, and went from death to back to life uh, beneath my hands there. And um, a week later, she brought in these three blueberry pies that she'd bake for the fire department, and she was fine. You know, and it, there's no explanation for why. And I think this oftentimes about people who are in a coma why why is that soul holding on because it takes a lot of energy to animate a human body when that human body has stopped all apparent conscious behavior why would the energy center stay there what's what's its rationale for sticking around and it's bothered me even to this day i don't know the answer fully but what what i've gotten to see a lot of recently around people who are alive and starting to find each other this kind of experience of village or tribe coming back in this is this family beyond blood the way in which we interact even right now you know you and i met a few years back and and uh, have huge respect for each other and like listening to each other's content we put out in the world all this but it was important that we came together this time. It was important to you. It was important to me. And, and we made time, both of us, in busy schedules to, to make this thing happen. And we could come up with a lot of human reasons as to why, well, Charlie's this damn good-looking dude. And people feel good to be next to him. Stop that beard it. is just epic. And I aspire to such yeah, a thing. Get your hand you know, up the leg. There's a lot of this going on <laughs> on the human level. But actually, mm. those are just the human rationale for why we want to be together that energy center the soul kind of floating above us here that's animating these two bodies there was work to be done and I have no idea what that work was may or may not have anything to do with farming my guess is it has absolutely nothing to do with farming but those souls wanted to be together to do something of work and the way that quantum physics does work together is through synergy of, of vibrations which could be called in music something like harmonics so there's a harmonic or a harmony between our two energy centers that animate our bodies that it feels good when we get together and it feels good when we give each other a hug because there's this 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 amplification or synergy happening between my waveforms and your waveforms and it strikes a chord within us that's greater than either of us alone and for that reason 
we create all these human constructs and descriptions of relationships and all this. And we saying, oh, that's a good relationship. That's a failed relationship. That one ended in divorce. That one has a broken, you know, broken relationship between two, you know, partners who joined this company and couldn't get along and create all these human drama stories around the fact that souls are putting themselves in sacred geometry together all the time for reasons we cannot imagine. And so the sacred geometry of what's happening around us, I think, is really uh, the thing that settles me into the state of somebody in a coma, is there's a reason that soul is here that has absolutely nothing to do with the way in which they can hug their their loved ones or speak to them or even squeeze a hand. And so they lay there paralyzed and without any evidence of neurologic function. And they lay there because they're here doing work still. And that soul is expressing some vibration that is important to the other 8 billion souls that are vibrating on the planet right now. And it's, it's only a human mind that could see that as nonsensical or, you know, somehow not valuable. We should, we should just be dumbstruck awe of every human body that is animated at this time. And then we need to go turn our eyes outward and be dumbstruck that these trees are choosing to grow here in their current form to be present with us. These are ascended masters of vibrational truth that have become so so clear on being alive. They need so few genes to express such a pure form of life. Actually, I haven't ever thought of this, but it just dawned on me that this is a lot like this letter from... Winston Churchill that was written to uh, the American president, uh, FDR, uh, Franklin Roosevelt at the beginning of World War II. Uh, London was deep in it and Russian, or the, the Russians hadn't joined yet to help out. And so it, it kind of looked like London was going to have to hold down all of Europe against the, the Third Reich. And Winston Churchill was trying to convince the U.S. to step in, and the U.S. had absolutely no appetite for World War II. The, the populace in particular had not, wanted nothing to do with this far-off war that seemed impossibly distant and couldn't understand why we would care about Germany or what they were doing at the time. And this letter of plea was written, and the, it started uh, with the incredible sentence of, I apologize for the length of this letter. I did not have time to write you a shorter one. And there's something beautiful about that, and that brevity is ultimately the code for wisdom. And when we find ourselves in a vociferous state, like I always find myself in, it means I haven't quite found wisdom yet. And so it strikes me that this oak out here that we're looking at, that thing is perfection because it's gotten rid of all of the, the unneeded material that would express self, and it just simply in its long patience of writing the shortest possible letter to express a completely coherent living being, it is perfection. That oak tree is wise for its brevity of genetics. The human has a lot of confusion, perhaps, around who it is at the genetic level, it seems, but uh, there's only 1.5% of our genome that actually has it, expresses a gene. The other 98.5% does not express a gene, so allopathic medicine came to call this junk DNA. Because when you look out at nature, obviously it's overwhelming amount of junk, and there's waste everywhere. Nature doesn't know junk, and it doesn't do waste. And it was sobering when we kept doing genetic sequencing of all, the whole human genome. Certainly the 20,000 genes we have is a pretty measly amount. Uh, it turns out that a fruit fly has 13,000 genes and a flea has 30,000 genes. So you sit somewhere between a fruit fly and a flea. 
which anybody who's ever met you may not be too surprised about. But. <laughs> yeah, rude. <laughs> hey, I already gave, I, I gave you a good accolade for the beard. <laughs> gotta, I can't let it go one, to your head. One minus one, like I zero. We're back to knock, zero. Knock you back down. To, to <laughs> My head was getting even big with that. Flea to fruit fly. Mm. 20,000 genes is a very small amount, but expresses 400,000 different proteins to build the complexity of a human being. And we now know that happens because of the other 98.5% of the genome that does not express a gene expresses a language. And that junk DNA is actually the language of flexibility. And so we are the most flexible being on the planet because we have more junk DNA, which is to say we have more of these microRNA that are expressed from our genome. And the microRNA are exuded outside of our cells and go communicate with all of the other cells around us to coordinate complex behavior systems. And so the, the pig and the human are way more flexible in our behavior than that oak tree because of all of this quote-unquote junk DNA because every gene can make you know hundreds of different proteins, whereas that oak tree is pretty much making one, one protein for every gene it has. And so the more flexibility you have in the genome... In some ways, the more confused about who you are because you're able to be so many different options. And be manipulated by other They're things. They changed by everything around you. And so we are the most plastic of inventions of nature to this point because we have the most junk DNA or the most microRNA of expression. And so we are the most adaptable of species. And this is how we've come to live on every single you know habitat on Earth. And that's how we've learned to not only survive, but to commandeer resources and, and knock out other species and everything else because we're so adaptive and we're so good at pattern recognition and then adapting biologically to those patterns. So for all of that, it's say brevity is it might lead to the purity of wisdom that the oak tree has. But for my complexity as a human, it gives me the opportunity for the highest number of expressions of beauty that nature would imagine. And so we should not should not discount the plasticity of the human genetic experience or, or our expression of self. But neither should we blow it up out of proportion and think we're somehow superior to that oak tree because uh, if, we, if we go to discount the oak tree, then we forget the wisdom of nature and we, st- we stop listening to it and then we forget ourselves because the Ubuntu is no longer being realized. We, we just think we are and we don't realize we're only because of the other. And uh, it, this oak tree makes me more Zach today uh, for the amount of time we've been talking about it um, because it has a wisdom that I can't hold because I am too plastic and too complex to be oak and uh, my plasticity makes me vulnerable and therefore I need that oak more than that birch tree does over there because that birch tree is just damn birch no matter what but that oak tree and that human that oak tree has a way of a capacity to anchor me to my own self through its rock solid wisdom it's the simplicity of its wisdom is far more important to me than the birch, I think, because of my vulnerability as a plastic being. And I can lose track of myself very, very easily as a being or as a biologic expression for all of that flexibility. And I think that unfortunately, as we get disconnected from the wisdom of nature, we start to express a lot of chaos. And uh, that's the second law of thermodynamics that is so well demonstrated. Any system left in isolation increases its chaos. And so as we stop looking to the grounding force of of the wisdom of the oak and we start running around thinking we're just humans without any idea that we're actually complex ecologies, more complex than a coral reef within the gut environment or whatnot, and we just think we're human, then there's no problem taking an antibiotic 
How could that possibly hurt me to kill bacteria? Well, suddenly your coral reefs within your body are, are bleached and no longer producing life, and there's dust blowing through your veins instead of living soil, and suddenly your vitality starts to be reduced and your metabolism or your ability to release light energy within your cells is declining because the mitochondria are dying inside your cells because you're eating antibiotics every day and the antibiotics are killing the bacteria within your cells and your reserve of mitochondria is diminishing rapidly. And we know very clearly that longevity in a human being is determined by the number of mitochondria inside your cells and the amount of water inside that cell. And so it's intracellular dehydration and the intracellular loss of ecology or loss of these little bacteria inside your cells that determine your your vitality of life. And so when we see coronavirus sweep across the planet and, and millions of people die, it's not because coronavirus is bad. It's not even that coronavirus can do anything to us. The bodies chose to take that up to recycle into a more vital expression of beauty on this planet. And that's hard to wrap our minds around because we're emotional beings and it's hard to not blame something outside of ourselves for our experience. We're, we're always looking to blame. We're always looking to rationalize why we feel the way we do inside of ourselves by things that are happening outside of ourselves. Instead of taking radical responsibility, this is my experience and I, I created this experience. And if we die from coronavirus, we created that experience by a constant disconnect from the vitality of the earth and our body recognized that and saw the opportunity to jump to back into its most vital form which might be finding its way back into that soil system through our death and, and become something of nature again. You said the other night that uh, I'm, I'm sure this is the word, literally the words you used that the pandemic was a good thing. Is that fair to say? How are we going for time? I think everything's a good thing. <laughs> Honestly, I think uh, one of my favorite you know, books of wisdom is uh, something that was you know, channeled or downloaded or created in the 1960s and, and late uh, into the early 70s or something like that by a gal who suddenly got access to an extraordinary array of wisdom flowing through, you know, what seems kind of like a religious construct uh, from it. But when you start reading it, it's a deeper wisdom that precedes any religion on the planet. But it's called The, the Course of Miracles and, and uh that that tome finishes with one concept uh, right towards the end. It says, the last thing that I will do in this human body is to give up judgment. And uh, that's, that's, the, that's the wisdom of all wisdoms right there, is that to, to finally relieve yourself of this finite human journey of suffering, you have to give up judgment. And the moment you give up judgment, uh, you find such freedom, such a, a levity of heart, uh, and so to run around and say the pandemic is bad or Monsanto is bad or Roundup is bad or whatever it is, is no, Roundup exists. We, we, create, we helped create that. We, we took nature and we transformed its structure to create glyphosate, which is an organophosphate salt, and we poured it into our soils all over the place. And what we learned from that is that we are uh, not inseparable from the nature that we live in or eat from. In fact, we are at one with the soils beneath our feet. And we may not have found that out had we not used a chemical to kill our soils. And now that we're 97% of our arable soils depleted or severely depleted of carbon and other critical nutrients, we find human life disappearing. And if we take this learning deeply and transform our behavior in recognition that the new metrics of the new human society have to be soil, water, and air, 
no other metric matters. We're not gonna we're gonna stop measuring GDP, gross domestic product in trillions of dollars, and we're gonna start measuring measuring GSP, global soil productivity. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I love it. Uh, global soil productivity has to be the metric of every economy on the planet now. And if we glance away from that, we will our economic structures of value will continue to to consume the very nature that we we live within or have sprung out of and we will go into our extinction event so no reason to think of the pandemic as bad or good or simply happened what what happened a virus was distributed across the surface of the planet um, by our own behavior again we we had all these fires that we started in australia and then Central South America and burning out the Amazon jungle and, and then Central Africa, um, all of those over the course of 2019, 2020, during which time we put more PM 2.5, which is a, a volatile carbon particulate, into the atmosphere that carries viruses. And without those fires, there would have not been the possibility of a coronavirus pandemic. And those fires, when they stopped, stopped burning in, in Central South America and Africa, started all up the coast of, of North America. We had to have three years of the biggest fires on record around the planet to keep this thing going. There's no way the pandemic could have kept going uh, in, its, in the fashion it did without all of that carbon particulate to carry it globally. And so human behavior with fires led to the capacity for viruses to spread with more toxicity because the virus actually doesn't cause the, the syndrome that was killing people. People were dying in ICUs from a condition that's called histotoxic hypoxia, which is where they show up blue, uh, where there's no, no oxygen being delivered to the tissue without respiratory failure, which means they are having no time, no problem breathing. They might have a little bit of cough and they're breathing 25 times a minute, so that's no problem. You can do that for weeks. But they're dying because the oxygen can't get delivered to the tissue, so they look blue. Chest x-ray initially is totally clear. There's no pneumonia, no fluid in the lungs. 24 hours after being going blue, all of the, all of the compartments of the body start to fail because there's no oxygen delivery. And so in that anoxic state, the lungs fill up with fluid. And after you get fluid in the lungs, you eventually get bacterial infections and things like that. And so they would die of pneumonias two weeks later. The virus by this time is long gone. So what the heck was killing people? Because a virus can't cause histotoxic hypoxia. A virus can cause a little bit of pneumonia, but they're not showing up in pneumonia. They're showing up with this blue state. And this happened in 2001 with SARS, and it happened again in, in 2012 with, with MERS, and then you know, what we call COVID-19. Those three times were all coronaviruses, and uh, each time people were showing up with this blue histotoxic hypoxia. The fires are actually the reason that people were dying. And so the fire carrying the PM 2.5 doesn't only bind coronavirus, it binds cyanide. Cyanide is released in the atmosphere in very high concentrations during fire. And so, uh, look at this, we got Santa Claus yelling. It's exciting. Um, <laughs> In his cape. Yeah, he's got a cape on Santa he's got a Claus. Great with cape. A cape. Is it cold? I, th I think he's actually masquerading as a virus. That's what, <laughs> if you could see a virus, it would look like Santa Claus with a cape, bringing gifts of life and new potential. <laughs> well, he looks a bit like a particle of smoke, doesn't <laughs> he? He's, he's, got, he's got that great, great <laughs> gray forest fire cloak on. He's part of my props. <laughs> I can I've got you got this thing very well choreographed. The kids run in. <laughs> I was a bit like, Cue the kids. And release Cue the Santa ibis Claus. now. <laughs> yeah, get, get the ibis all on those posts perfectly, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 
so the, the cyanide actually binds to uh, PM 2.5 and coronavirus binds to PM 2.5 and coronavirus has this beauty, beautiful capacity to bind to a receptor in lung tissue and carry whatever it's got tagged to it into the bloodstream. And so what was happening is coronavirus was simply delivering the toxicity of human behavior back to us. And so there was an equalization event that happened. You burn the planet, you burn the lungs of the planet, which is South America and Africa. You burn those two green zones, you're going to die of lung failure, basically. And so biology has all these incredibly exquisite and detailed checks and balances, and, and the lung is designed to pick up the toxicity of the atmosphere that we would create through our own behavior, which is just poetic in its nature. Was that arson or accident? Well, all the fires were definitely, you know, recognized to be arson largely, but also started by industrial practices. So South America and Africa were definitely burning under industrial efforts to convert native grasslands and, and forests into chemical agriculture, as well as large grazing uh, territories for cattle and, and sheep. And so, um, yeah, it was definitely human behavior then. Those, those weren't all being started by lightning or something like that. These were these were human started fires. And in Australia and North America in particular, the, most of it was arson. I think in South America and Africa, most of it was industrial behavior. Um, but those fires raged. It was an unbelievable fire season. 20, 2019 into 2020 into 2021, we've never seen so much organic matter go up into carbon as we did that, those three years. And for that, we had to have a pandemic and we had to blame some virus for it. And coronavirus happens to be a bystander that's always around. Coronavirus is one of the most common uh, causes of the common cold on the planet. And you saw what happened. As soon as the fires went out, we stopped dying. And suddenly coronavirus was causing just like three to four days of you know, fever and a bit of a headache and go to sleep and feel better. In those first two years when the fires were burning, we were losing our sense of smell, losing our sense of taste. We were ending up in ICUs because we were poisoning our body at the neurologic level with cyanide. Mm. And I'm very frustrated that the medical community has been so mute on this issue. And it's not really the doctor's lack of education, which is definitely part of it. We are very poorly educated, but it, it also has to do with this fear of, of ink inquiry, which just is so frustrating because we're supposed to be scientists, which is to say we're supposed to ask questions about everything. We're supposed to critically think about everything as scientists. And yet the new form of science is find the status quo of a narrative and then stick to it no matter what. And we had to ignore so we had to ignore 30 years of understanding of viruses and genetics and histotoxic hypoxia never came up in the news. I talked about it all the time on podcasts, 160 times I talked about it during that first year, nobody picked that up. No, not a single news feed ever got that message out there because you don't turn blue from a virus ever. It's impossible people were dying from a viral illness. And yet that that's it. And it's because now you can do PCR to prove that the coronavirus is there, which is ridiculous. The inventor yeah. of PCR says you cannot use this as a diagnostic tool. It simply says the virus is in the environment. And then he, he disappeared. He died. Yeah. Yeah, so fit fits a rooster it was. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, so anyway, all of this is to say the pandemic was a good thing because it happened. There's no reason to have any judgment on it. it was a bad thing. Is yeah, I can get frustrated emotionally about that, but it was a bad thing. No, I guess not because we needed it. We wouldn't have done it if we didn't need the journey. And at some point, we have to find out that there's a consequence to burning the lungs of the planet, which is our lungs fail. 
And uh, we learn that. And uh, whether or not we wake up to learn that lesson or we go ahead and go extinct for the continued behaviors that are driving this process, that's that's the choice for this next decade or two before we, we seal our fate. But some people think we've already sealed our fate and we're on our hospice moment as a species, which is okay, too, because I've never seen a death that wasn't a new beginning point. And so if we need to recycle as a species, there's no reason to put a whole bunch of human emotion on that even like or a judgment on is that bad that we go extinct well no it's if we go extinct that's what we did (laughs) and uh, certainly our souls will move on these energy centers cannot be destroyed and they will go on to express beauty and after every single extinction my goodness does it get better and the last extinction 55 million years ago took us from dinosaurs to extinction 95 percent of life lost on the planet my god what a travesty if we had been around to emotionally process that my lord talk about 40 generations of trauma but we weren't here because nature hadn't imagined us yet but the reptiles under stress put out a whole bunch of new genetic sequences that turned into birds that turned into mammals that turned into humans And so we got imagined by a nature that was given its possibilities by the virome, the the entire genetic library of the planet, enriched by a stress experience of of extinction. Because when you put biology under stress, it, it starts misspelling all of its genes to try to find new variants that will survive the stressor. And so the extinction level stress we have going on the planet right now is creating more viruses than have ever existed on the planet because we have more genetic possibilities. Uh, there was no, not only were there no birds and mammals, there was no deciduous trees before the last extinction. There was no wildflowers. That all came because of the new genetic potential uh, occurring from, from species collapse or extinction. So it's going to get beautiful around here. It's going to be even more beautiful. What happens from a jump from dinosaurs to birds and mammals to another extinction where the birds and mammals disappear to what's more beautiful than that at that same degree of jump? Imagine. I can't imagine. It's just going to be so colorful, so diverse, so beautiful. The sunsets are going to be even more magnificent for the amount of water in the atmosphere and whatnot. And uh, we, there's a dance of beauty that's going to keep on going after the humans, and uh, we're, we're likely to be a part of it in some form or fashion because our energy cannot be destroyed. Uh, it will simply take on a different form. And so I'm excited that maybe in my maturation as a human, I maybe I get to achieve oak in my next life and I get to practice brevity. Um, I want to start with extinction. And we you talked on Friday night about soil and, you know, I get and the relationship between soil depletion and fertility and the fertility of of mankind. Can we go there? Because that's kind of all tied up, isn't it? It is all tied up, yeah. And this gets us back to that discussion of bacteria and mitochondria. So we're using all these herbicides and pesticides globally. We're using about four billion pounds or two point two billion kilograms of glyphosate uh, globally now and most of that's not coming from Monsanto and Bayer. Uh, Monsanto uh, gets gets a lot of credit for it because they, they brought it to market but today China produces the vast majority of glyphosate on the market and here in Australia that's where all your glyphosate is coming from. You guys are not buying it from the United States or Germany. Um, you're buying it all from China because it's cheaper and you have a, a free trade agreement with China around your farm inputs and so you're buying all, all of them and, and Australia has approved more herbicides and pesticides than any Western country. You guys currently have 8,000 inorganic 
chemicals approved for use in agriculture here compared to uh, somewhere around 2300 or something like that in the United States, which are gross numbers, both of it. But but Australia has approved more chemicals than any other Western country for application in agriculture. Uh, You guys have 33 different organophosphates uh, coming out of China, uh, one of which is glyphosate. Um, So uh, Australia is drowning under these chemicals uh, now. And uh, they affect plants and bacteria by wiping out a enzyme pathway. The enzyme pathway is called the shikimate pathway, and it produces the amino acids that we refer to as the essential amino acids, and specifically the aromatic amino acids, which are about six of the nine uh, amino acids, including phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan, 5-HTP, and a few others. So these amino acids are the building blocks for the 400,000 proteins in our body and any other multicellular organism, those oak trees, and et cetera. So there's 22 amino acids that basically build life with, around us, which is pretty amazing. It just takes 22 different Legos to build the beauty of life around us. And nine of those cannot be produced in multicellular organisms. Neither the oak tree nor the human can produce nine of those 22. And so those are the ones we call essential amino acids because it means we have to get it from our nutrition. So both the oak and I both have to get those nine out of the soil around us. And so the bacteria, the fungi, and even some plants are, are capable of making that, that uh, those essential amino acids. And glyphosate and the organophosphates block the shikimate pathway that makes those aromatic amino acids. So suddenly we lose six of our building blocks. Six out of 22 is a pretty high percentage of loss. And just like when you're trying to build that Lego building and suddenly you run out of your, your you know four-dot block, you have to use something else and so it's a little misshaped it doesn't turn out looking quite as good but it's functional the house is there that's what's happening to embryos as they form in the womb of women that are eating food grown under glyphosate is they're missing the building blocks that are appropriate to spell the enzymes or the other protein structures of the body and so they're misspelling proteins all over their body which means those proteins go on to be less functional you're losing the the full capacity for detox for metabolism for anabolic production of muscle and so you're becoming deficient in in your enzymatic activity which is to say your life force as you start to be formed in a world that is depleted of its uh, essential amino acids and that's the reality of humans that are born today Uh, we're two generations into this organophosphate experience we're just starting to see the third generation born Uh, each generation biologically is about 25 years and so, you know, 1974, 75 is when we we hit it. And so we're just hitting the 50-year mark in these next couple of years. And so we're going to start seeing this third generation born. And frighteningly, the impact of a biologic injury like this is not recognized until the third generation ends at full expression. We have certainly seen disease explode in the first two generations, but we have not seen anything but the beginning of what will be the biggest humanitarian disaster in the history is the third generation starts to express the third version of disease and dysfunction from this glyphosate injury that started in 1974. And so it's a scary time we're moving into from uh, from a human emotional standpoint, but it's biology's plan. It's, this is biology's way of of leveling the playing field and using humans to do what we did best, which was to to be a diaspora of information to the planet. We were the ultimate pollinators. We brought genetic information all over the planet for our plasticity. 
And for that, nature is turning us over now. We're, we're being recycled, regenerated into a new state of being. And that's going to require a lot of death to occur. And, and it's appropriate, I think, to have some human emotion about that and, and feel a, a deep sense of heartbreak that we didn't take the opportunity to continue. But maybe we need the transformation. Maybe we need this huge metamorphosis to, to wake up to a new possibility of what we want to express as a human biology because we could stay to play. I don't think we have to go to extinct. We certainly will if we continue our behavior as we do today. But I've seen so much evidence in these recent years, just as you have, that people are ready for radical transformation. And we see it in these farms around us. We are remembering a relationship to soil that was present for 200,000 years of our history and was only lost in the last 100, 150 years. Uh, Some people would argue back maybe to 1837 is a big turning point, but uh, worst case scenario, we're 190 years away from uh, a 200,000-year history of relationship to soil systems. So we're remembering that, and so we created this whole industry that we now call regenerative agriculture or whatnot. Uh, as a species, but regenerative agriculture is simply a reconnection. That's my one word definition of regeneration is reconnection. We are reconnecting to nature. We're reconnecting to soil systems, reconnecting to vitality. We're reconnecting to the amino acid pool uh, that is uh, potentiated within healthy soil systems so that healthy plants can be grown, so that healthy humans can be grown. All of that happens so quick, right? You're seeing it every day on these farms you're consulting on. You can take a chemical agricultural space that's been decimated by 40 years of of, antibiotic use, and then within one spring doing the right things, you've suddenly got a vitality and a biodiversity that has not been seen in two generations. I want to go back to something you said the other night, which gets back to something we talked about earlier was when you're in that room, you, you made mention of the fact that we were in that room and why we we're in that room and that there was, you linked that back to kind of an innate ancestral trauma and genocide and like we are, those in the room essentially are built for this time and this challenge, you know, and that, that was, you know, we are here as, as um, foot soldiers, if I can use that expression for that radical transformation. That's fair to say. Yeah, we're, I mean, collectively, we're the expression of it, right? We, Some sort of larger thing is expressing itself through humanity. We are a single organism, ultimately, not just as humans, but as life on Earth, we're a single organism. This becomes really evident when you're looking back at the Earth from space. Uh, my best friend from medical school has been up there a couple of times, just got back from the International Space Station. He was up there for six months. and. The photographs he was sending me were just so ridiculous, right? You've, you've got, yeah, I, I take a selfie of myself in some of the pyramids and post that on the internet. And then he's, <laughs> then he posts, hey, here's sunrise across Earth from low Earth orbit. You know, yeah. And here's the northern lights <laughs> from space. Like, it was obscenely beautiful pictures he was sending back. And, and he would call me on, on my cell phone and it always freaked me out because it would always come across the U.S. government. It's how it pops up on my phone. Oh my God, they finally found me. <laughs> And Shell uh, would answer the phone, and I, it was just so amazing to hear his voice so crisp and clear. He'd be talking through a, a satellite that's you know orbiting near him. Every five minutes, the phone would drop because his space station is tra- traveling at 28,000 miles an hour. It would go over the horizon, lose that satellite, and have to pick up the next one, so he'd keep calling me back. And so there's this uh, interesting thing of talking to your friend, clears a bell on a cell phone, 
telling you that he's looking down on Earth, and if he, he trains his eyes the other direction, all he can see is black space as far as the eye can see, and uh, it gives you a sense of, my goodness, we are... We do not have a the privilege of seeing how special life is on this planet uh, because we lack the lack the perspective we until we get out of that atmosphere for a moment and look back down and my God, is that precious there's not another blue speck in that dark dark space out there that can be seen, and we've poured our telescopes out there into space looking for that other earth without finding what looks like an inhabitable planet yet. And so it's a rare thing to be alive. It is a rare thing to have a living Earth. And I sure hope we wake up to that really soon because the, the sovereignty of this place, the miracle of this place, is you know, it brings tears to my eyes. And at this moment, humans are the most intelligent expression of the, of the plasticity of nature to date and for this we ha we play an important role in the expression and perhaps even more important our witness of beauty i believe that we can see beauty in a very unique way and we're given these conscious experiences that give us the ability to express that beauty we can write poetry we can write music we're the only species that does art like this and um it's it's that creative streak within us that is the evidence of the, of the divine within us and so please go home tonight and whoever you are I, I don't care what you do I would encourage you to sit down with a pen and paper with a candle nearby turn off all the electric lights a couple candles and sit there with a pen and a paper and write something and it can be one sentence it could be five words it doesn't matter but write something, create something on that page. To, and if you don't know where to begin, simply describe your cup of coffee in the morning that you had 12 hours ago. Describe the face of your grandmother on paper for a second. Take the time to write down what it feels like when you touch the hand of your lover and the partner across the table there. Uh, put down on paper for a second what it feels like inside your chest when you look at your child's face or look at a picture of your child when they were still a child. That art that is going to come out of you is your highest calling as a human. Be witness to the beauty and record it in your art. And for that, you will make the earth a better place for the art that you contribute. I think the art, our art as humans is the only thing that we've done that has done no harm has actually added to the richness of this world around us. Uh, our art has been flawless in some ways in its ability to manifest and, and reflect the beauty that we are witness to in this world. I don't want to stop. This is too good. <laughs> I do have another couple of questions for you. What I'm going to do... I'm going to push Blair, Koala Blair, <laughs> his boundaries a little. Uh, he's such a nice guy. Everybody pushes his boundaries. <laughs> he but he like won't. Re he won't regret it. I promise. Um, I have a couple of little quick ones now, and then I just want to do a little quick Q and A because I have a little Patreon membership community, and those 
those who support the podcast, they, they get these little behind-the-scenes Q&As with all my guests, and so this is for them in a minute. But I wanted to... Um, Oh no, we will leave it there. I think. No, no. One last thing. You, you, you mentioned your massive transformative purpose the other day. Mm. You, you, you okay to share that <laughs> with, with us? Those two. They were like, mm. yeah, it's an exercise I did with all my staff uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, companies are starting to do this. They're starting to drop their vision statement and their mission statement. All this, and instead, come up with a massive transformative purpose. And interesting, the companies that are choosing to do this are showing themselves to be the. You know, much more frequently the unicorns, the ones that go go wildly successful. Um, companies like Red Bull are examples. They're not necessarily good products or healthy products, but they create a massive transformative purpose. Red Bull happens to be, we give you wings. Red Bull gives you wings. Mm. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that toxic drink has never given anybody wings, but it's a great purpose, right? And a great sense. This, this massive transformative purpose is, frankly, they want people to feel better and they're willing to dump a bunch of chemicals in you to try to make you feel better. <laughs> um, but uh, it is an interesting thing to do that as a single human being is to get past your sense of, well, I got to figure out my mission or I got to figure out my vision. Instead, w- what is this deeper vibration of truth within you? And so it was a two-day exercise. We brought in a team to do this and it was really beautiful uh, way of reflecting on who we are. And after this process, uh, mine essentially became, I am the storm, and I'm ready to die again today. And uh, it's not entirely obvious when I say I am the storm what that means, I suppose, but um, it took me a while to figure out, at least on some surface, what that means. But a storm is a really interesting thing is that it is actually not a thing, right? It's actually a collection of a number of elements of nature that come together for a moment to completely transform the environment, right? You've got this peaceful scene out here, but you got clouds brewing out over there on the, on the horizon over those mountains that are starting to gather thicker, and you have a sense that there's a lot of pent-up energy in those clouds right there. And pretty soon, those are going to break forth into a torrent of rain that's going to come tumulting down those mountains. And you guys have seen some of the most extreme flooding in the history of this country over the last uh, few months. And they have wiped out bridges and roads that, you know, they wiped out over a year ago in some places are still wiped out today. It's going to take your country years to rebuild the infrastructure that these storms have taken out. And yet, what is a storm? It's certainly not the rain because that's the rain. It's not the wind because that's the wind. And so the storm is somehow a collection of elements that comes together to to do transformative work. And I feel like that's kind of what I've I've chosen to become is something that uh, demands transformation around myself. And to get there, I've had to be willing to do a whole lot of transformation within myself, which gets to the second sense, which is... The reason I got to where I am today is because I was willing to die to a whole lot of constructs and identities and beliefs and learned learned roles and learned information and, and continue to lose that and say, okay, that's, that's not the whole story. What's the whole story? What's the deeper story? And it's hard to die to yourself constantly because you know, I wake up every day kind of wanting to have some sort of stability. Like, man, I just wish I could just land. Like I'm tired of deconstructing. And I've had to deconstruct everything in my life. My concept of being a dad, my concept of being a husband, my concept of marriage itself, my concept of being a doctor, my concept of having a clinic, my concept of being valuable to my community, my concept of being American, my concept of you know, 
being human on some level and surrendering to the possibility I'm just an ecology that, that expresses itself through a human you know, matrix. And I keep dying and I keep dying and I keep dying and, and I don't want to stop dying and I'd rather die and be uncomfortable than start being comfortable in some older version of myself because nature has never stopped dying to herself. And so I want to be a part of nature. I want to be completely aligned with this vibration that allows this earth to be green and blue. That we have a carbon cycle and a water cycle is all that matters to me anymore. Is that's what it means to be freaking alive. And the difference between quantum physics of my soul and a body that's finitely created in the particle state for a moment is 10,000 times brighter. The sun is 10,000 times less impressive than I am because I'm alive. And my living life form is able to capture that energy from the sun and turn it into something so much brighter. And so I want to burn bright in these few moments that I am in a particle state of biology because I'm going to certainly return to physics very soon. And I'm sure that's beautiful because I've seen enough people returning to that place and report back the beauty. But I won't be able to see the steam off of my cup of tea in the morning and I will not be able to taste sourdough bread and I will not know the hand of another human in my hand in that moment. So, man, I need to be awake and I need to be willing to die to myself until I'm in such a vibrational coherence with nature that I am so alive that I am in a state of constant ecstasy no matter how it looks like on some human metric I'm failing. Failed relationships, failed biology. Someday I'm going to be laying in a bed dying. And I, I plan to be in such a vibrational state that I just am in orgasmic ecstasy over the state of being to be able to lay on my back and relax and look up at the ceiling and see the play of light across a painted surface or whatever boring thing I might be looking at. I, I hope I'm in such a coherent state that I can I can go into tears over the beauty of, of the chrome on the side of a mirror or whatever the hell I'm looking at. It's all so miraculous in its finite nature. And I hope I'm I've gotten there. I hope I've died enough times to myself by the time I'm biologically dying so that I can see the beauty of it in its full expression. We gotta leave it there. I don't think I can't top it. <laughs> I wouldn't even try. Doubt I can either. <laughs> Zach, that was um, such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, you've got to come back. You gonna come back? Yeah, oh, we, there's we don't, a song don't... line. There's a song line yeah, here. There I'll is. Come back. Yeah. I'll come back. I remember this place. This is deep in my bones, just as it's deep in your bones. And we're sitting here because. We remembered to come back to a place where we've been before, and so maybe I was an oak, maybe you were an oak, uh, but we've been here before, and uh, we'll be here again, and uh, maybe it'll be human. Maybe we can do this again. Maybe we can explore. I've got so many questions I didn't even get to ask, but um, there's we've got our lifetimes to do that. Um, I'm going to ask you in my little Q&A what your genius is too, so... You can have a minute to think about it. But if you want to find out what Zach's genius is, jump on our little community and um, and you can you can share share it there. Zach, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks to all those of you who are listening somewhere in the world. Thank you for being there. I am because you are. 
And next week's guest on the Regenerative Journey is David Carter. He is the one of the herd managers for Highland Beef Pastoral Company, who you should by now by now well know are the um, season six sponsors of the Regenerative Journey. One of David's jobs is to uh, make sure and oversee the induction of animals onto their um, uh, farmers' properties. Uh, those farmers who are looking after those animals and fattening them uh, for, high, for Highland beef, um, making sure they've got the numbers right and, um, uh, you know, supporting those farmers um, and, and doing facilitation of a, of a reasonably large region uh, of farmers in New South Wales. Lovely fellow. I didn't know much about David at all, but I'll tell you what, I know a lot more about him now, as you will, by the end of this uh, in, this interview that you'll be hearing next week Uh Lovely interview, lovely fella, love, really nice voice too. Very, very, he, he tells a good yarn about um, how his voice got him into opening a few doors uh, next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Reese Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.